I was heading out the door, they kind of caught me, caught my shirt tails up and they pulled me back in and they said, what are you doing? I said, AA doesn't work. It may work for you. It may work for you. It doesn't work for me. Now get out of my way and let me go do what I need to do. And they said, well, have you tried, have you tried it our way? I said, you know, what's your way? I've been doing, this doesn't work. I read the steps. That doesn't do. Yeah, I've tried to pray. I read the first few pages of the book. That does, it doesn't work. He said, why don't you do what we ask you to do and then see how it works? And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go drink anyway. So why not give it a shot? Today's Sober Friends podcast is brought to you by Holly. Holly bought us a coffee. Holly went to buymeacoffee.com backslash Sober Friends and she bought us a little bit of Java. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. And if you think it's important to spread the word to the newcomer that recovery is possible, consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Sober Friends. I'm Matt. Hey, I'm Steve. Hey, I'm John. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. We're here for the sober curious, the new guy, and the old timer. Here to talk about the stuff anyone looking to live alcohol-free has to face day to day, and how we overcame those struggles. We speak for no 12-step group, but we do try to remain anonymous. You're not alone. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. What a treat today. I think we have the... I don't know if we've had, Steve, any any huge old... I think the closest old-timer that we have is John, yeah. who's sober since 1990, but I don't really consider him an old-timer. But we got him beat today. Boy, we have a treat for you. We have Howard L. from the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Howard does an amazing job with his interviews. And I'm just impressed on how you pull this stuff conversationally out of this these people. Late, your, your last interview that was released on March 16th is with Bud S., who was sober 44 years. He's 94 years old. I cannot wait to go through this one. Howard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. That's really a pleasure to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you with us. How long have you been sober? My sobriety date is January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. Wow. You answered my question, I guess, of how you did it. The answer is one day at a time. Yeah, my journey... Well, let's just say my journey was, I like to tell people things got bad enough that I had to go into AA, you know? You mean people don't just go to, for the social hour, for the cookies, <laughs> for the coffee? Eventually. You I go mean, in limping into AA? Whatever it takes. I knew a guy who, who lived on the streets for a long time who said the only reason he went back to the AA meeting is because they had cookies. And he didn't he didn't listen to anything that was said for the first number of months, and uh, then he finally got it. He was sitting there eating their cookies. They welcomed him anyway. So, uh, but no, I got sober in in January January first, nineteen eighty eight, and uh, I had drank for the previous twelve years. So I started drinking right out of high school. And the reason I didn't drink during high school was I had a girlfriend who didn't like guys who drank. And so I had a choice, and uh, I chose the I chose the woman. I chose the the goodies of having a relationship versus drinking. But once I got to college, all bets were off, and uh, I went full steam as if I had never not drank. And it was great. It helped me cover up all kinds of shortcomings and all kinds of difficulties and all of those family of origin issues that had haunted me my whole life. That was the case with me in college that I was, that's where I really got my start because alcohol became available. And even though I was under 21, the bars at my college were open at the time in 1993. If you came in with a college ID, it was a 21 year, it was still 21 years old in New York, mm -hmm. but because the college held some weight, you could get in and you could drink with a college ID and that's mm. no longer the case. But yeah, I felt like I could I could get the things I wanted from life now because it was available. Yeah. Well, when I was in college, the drinking age was 18 for 3-2 beer. So you could get the near, you know, the low the low alcohol beer at that time, which was 
not so great. But I hung out with with groups of people who loved to drink and party. And so, uh, but I was also a pot smoker too. Uh, most of my friends were only drinkers. They would smoke occasionally, but I enjoyed both and particularly together. But there was a time at which I felt like I was getting really sloppy with my drinking. So I, I switched to grass for a while and didn't drink. But then I thought, why waste it? So I'm gonna. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to parties with people who had those big garbage can type punch drinks, you know, where all types of different alcohol was there, and it was, you know, I was I was a mess, and uh, I would get sloppy when I would get drunk, but whenever I smoked grass, it seemed to sharpen me up, you know, and uh, I used to like going out and driving for miles at a time, stoned. It was a very enjoyable time. For 12 years until I stopped. Yeah, I was never, I will tell you, I was never a pot smoker. I did it a few times. It was, every time was a bad experience. Mm. It never felt good. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was borderline psychotic and everybody was watching me and I hated that feeling and made the decision, you know what, alcohol is enough for me. Yeah. I got my hands full with alcohol. I'm good there. That's not unusual. When people get paranoid from smoking grass or other types of drugs, that's enough to keep them away from it. I, I, never, I never had that happen. Uh, in fact, I, I dreaded the blackout more than I did anything else. And I didn't black out very often. And I like to think that it's because I was smoking grass concurrently. Uh, I don't know if there's any research behind that, but it seemed to work for me at the time. And, you know, I was so into grass at that time, grass and hashish and hash oil and that kind of good stuff. I see Stephen nodding his head. <laughs> Your story is, uh, I think, a lot closer to Steve's. Yeah. yeah. And, and fortunately, if pot had been legal in a state in the Union where when I was, you know, uh, uh, in my early 20s. I would have moved there. I just would have picked up and gone. The only thing would have been the the pot. That would have been the only reason I would move, but it would be the reason I'd move, you know? And uh, I'm glad that... You were 32... You're 30 years too early. <laughs> well, well, Howard, it's interesting you said it. It was pot, you know, we've, I've talked about it on this podcast, and uh, it was a big part of my story. I smoked a lot of pot back in my yeah. day I, I liked it for a long time i did a lot more pot smoking than i did alcohol drinking but I always did both right always did both and i always liked the pot buzz until i would overdo it and become just totally too buzzed out mm. better than the alcohol buzz i can remember i always felt like when i was drunk on alcohol and were intoxicated i drove fast and when i was stoned i drove slow <laughs> right and yeah. it just i mean i just felt like it was just this totally different vibe like you said this different vibe and and it's funny because this is back in the 80s now so i'm in my early 20s i went up to the state capitol matt and we protested for the legalization of marijuana at the state capitol from a group called normal right normal uh, i remember yeah. them yeah and I can remember going up there, and we were all we were all a little paranoid that they're all taking pictures and names and stuff like this because obviously we were a long ways away from <laughs> legal marijuana. But did, I was did there. Did Grasso come uh, yeah. rolling out to greet you? <laughs> no, I don't think. Was it that but age? we were there. We we did our we did our best to to push for it. But I agree, it was a big part of my story. The National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Right? Correct. Yeah. Normal. Normal. Yeah. I remember that. That was a long time ago. Well, the one thing that I that I would have liked to have at that time that obviously there wasn't until pot got legalized for medical use was the quality assurance. Right. And, you know, it was always you never knew from batch to batch what you were going to get. Yeah. Fortunately, most of the grass that I smoked was pretty good. But, you know, one of the things I realized was that smoking an unfiltered substance as much pot smoking as I did every day, which was I... I smoked them almost like cigarettes and smoking an unfiltered, un, unadulterated weed. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure it didn't do my lungs very much no. good at the time. And I had a, I used to have kind of a chronic cough. It was the price I paid, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. But, you know, I, it was, I thought it was worth it at the time. Well, and then when ecstasy and quaaludes and the other things came along, those were always a lot of fun. I never got into cocaine though, you know, and yeah. 
I like to say the reason I didn't was cocaine was too short of a buzz. Yeah. It was as a value, you know, right. benefit to cost. <laughs> yeah. I could not justify it. It was too well, expensive for thinking. too short. Yeah. yeah, it was too <laughs> short a buzz for the amount of money it costs. And I had friends, you know, one of my friends who I interviewed early on in my uh, podcast series, Scott B., he talks about snorting his house up his nose, you know, brick yeah. by brick, yeah. because of all the money he spent chasing that elusive high from cocaine. I'm glad I never got to that point. Because I knew a lot of people who spent every dime they had on it. Yeah, I always said that I would do your cocaine. I was a cocaine user if you had it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, what was your favorite drug? What do you got? Right. <laughs> so, you know, I never got into cocaine. It was very, it was scary to me. And one of the reasons yeah. was, if I was into something like cocaine, then I had a real problem. Pot was fine because people smoked pot. Drinking was legal. But hard drugs, now, now I got a problem. And I was not going to let you point your finger at me and tell me I had a problem. So I go back to my little denial corner. So, Howard, when when I finally decided, um, a little bit like you, I I ended up falling in love with a person who didn't didn't mind my drinking as much but didn't like my my drug use. Mm Mm-hmm. And at that time when I met her, I was, there was, one of my friends did have some cocaine, so I was doing a bunch of that, and then obviously smoking pot, as I always did. And I found that I was able to kick those fairly easily, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I gave those up long before I ever got alcohol. How'd you find that? Well, you know, until I met my now wife, we've been married for 35 years, uh, you know, it's... And she grew up, her her father was an alcoholic. In fact, the very first time I ever met her parents was when we went over to her house when her dad had just gotten four years sober in AA and they had a cake for him and everything. The unfortunate part of that story is that he was never able to put together more than that amount of time. And he slipped in and out, in and out, and he finally died pretty tragically, but it was all alcohol-related. The... Uh, fire department in his neighborhood that he lived in used to come by and take the battery out of his car so he couldn't drive. Mm. And then there was a time when the they thought that because the transmission wouldn't go forward, that that would keep him from driving. He backed up everywhere he went, <laughs> literally. He yeah. backed up to the liquor store. Absolutely. But, but so, so she grew up with that in her family. So Perhaps their tolerance of me was a little bit better than it would have been. But as I continued to think that I could use drugs and alcohol, a year and a half into our marriage, things were falling apart very rapidly. Whenever she would face me down with the problem that I was causing in the marriage or in my own life, I was losing jobs, everything else that was going downhill, I said, you've got me confused with another man in your life. You've got me confused with your father. Your father's the one with the problem, not me, not me. But finally, she was. She went to enough Al-Anon over the years. And I think al I don't think she went to al but mostly Al-Anon, to at some point along the way say to me, this is a year and a half into our marriage, and we'd been together three years at that point, she said, you can go ahead and keep drinking if you want and keep smoking pot if you want. That'll be fine with me. I thought, hot dog. Yeah, I finally, I, fun, I won this one. She said, yeah, you can do that, but I won't be there. You'll do that alone. And that was stark enough and enough of a jolt for me to say, kind of like what, what, when I had the girlfriend in high school, it was either that or the drinking or the drugs. And so I chose to stop. And uh, like you, I didn't go into rehab to do it. Although what's interesting about it is I did go to a rehab center out in Arizona, a pretty well-known one. Incidentally, if you listen to any of my podcasts, you'll notice I anonymize every reference to any treatment center from the very lowliest to the world-renowned just because I don't think it's right for me under an AA moniker to say the name of any commercial Treatment yeah, center. you you hold to the traditions ironclad in your pocket. That that's that's very important. So I went to this treatment center for my sister's family week. She was there for six weeks for a cocaine addiction. 
And that was the first time that they ever faced me with, this is in October of 87, a few months before I got sober. This was the first time ever anybody had suggested that maybe I was an alcoholic. And it was the first time I ever admitted that I might be an alcoholic. But what was interesting about that particular treatment center was around that time, around the late 80s, codependency was a hot topic. John Bradshaw and some of the other gurus of uh, Melody Beatty and, um, you know, Codependent No More, some of the books that were out at the time. So somehow I got it into my mind that if I could deal with my codependency and my family of origin issues, that those would take care of the alcoholism. So I literally went to Codependence Anonymous for the first three or four months that I was sober until one of the guys in a in a therapy group I was in suggested that I had a problem with alcohol and that going to Codependence Anonymous wasn't going to do it. And he was right. And so that's when I came in. So I never did get a desire chip in AA. The first chip I got was a three-month chip when I had been sober in a different program and then came into AA, and I've been there ever since. If you are brand new and you're hearing this and you've lived this, maybe you're still drinking or maybe you're sober curious and you can identify with this good, solid, alcoholic thinking that Howard is talking about, you might have a problem and you might be at the right place. Uh, I'm just dying at this stuff that you went to a Codependence Anonymous meeting. You got called out for what your real problem was. That's a pretty good indication that you might have a problem. You know, the thing about alcoholism and the disease that I've noticed over the years, both with myself and the people I've sponsored and the people I've gotten to know in the program, is that it'll tell you all kinds of lies. It'll tell you all kinds of half-truths. It'll support any fragment of reality that may or may not be actually looming in your life. And so if you think that it's because of codependency that you're an alcoholic, it would make sense to the disease that, well, let's treat the codependency. But the disease knows as long as you're engaged in working a different program than AA, it's got a chance of surviving. So I don't want to anthropomorphize the, the disease, but it's, it's got a mind of its own. Cunning and baffling, and it's true. And, and powerful and, and patient. Powerful, right. There's an interesting book out there. I don't know if I've, you've ever heard of it. It's called Never Enough mm. by a, um author called uh, Judith Grizzle, I believe is how you say her last name. Mm-hmm. And she talks about her. It's a great story if you ever want to read something. She's a neurobiologist now, mm-hmm. and she says that she was an addict and alcoholic and she decided to go into her neurobiology because she figured if she could figure out what causes addiction then maybe mm-hmm. she could drink and use again hmm. it's, it's a really interesting take on her you know on her life yeah. because that is what our disease tells us right that maybe maybe someday some reason i could go back out there and figure this stuff out yeah and every couple of years every now and then Somebody will come out with a new study or new research or a new pill or a new treatment that completely sidesteps Alcoholics Anonymous. And part of the part of our charge as sober alcoholics is to remain tolerant and understanding and never be disparaging about other ways that people can possibly get sober. So with the exception of just my own personal experiencing experience of knowing that ninety nine percent of that stuff doesn't hasn't worked for people. The reality is that some people do get sober through church or mm-hmm. through through figuring it out. That whole movement about, especially amongst the people who are a- severely atheistic, that won't go in anywhere near AA for obvious reasons, and so they will explore those other things. The atheists I've seen who've come into AA and found a higher power within the program over my years of sobriety have been the people who've tried everything else but AA, and nothing works. So they come into AA. It truly can be the last house on the block. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's got to be a harder way. There's got to be something that's harder and with sandpaper on the bottom that I could rub myself against it instead of the easier, softer way. You're right. For You know, Howard, for better or for worse, I, I grew up in an alcoholic family, mm-hmm. and my mom drank from, my, my sisters tell me, I have older siblings, mm-hmm. they tell me she drank for a lot longer than I recall. My mother quit drinking. We we had to do a family intervention, which I got to lead at about mm. at about 21 years old, even though I had older, <laughs> older siblings. It was like, hey, Steve, uh, I think we need, you know. But anyway, and my mother 
got sober, and I don't believe she ever went to an AA meeting or anything, right? She had lots of faith and all. And she came back to the person that we all knew her to be. So That's wonderful. That has helped me understand that, yeah, it can happen. It certainly it didn't happen for me. And it, AA is the correct place for me to get sober, and it's a place that I know how to help someone else get sober. But I don't discount somebody for trying something else. Well, I, I wouldn't be spending as much time as I spend in recovery and in AA Right. If I wasn't getting more than just being dry, and right. and to of me course. that's it's when the it's when you notice the enrichment of your life through the program right. of the of Alcoholics Anonymous that it really takes a turn for the better. Yeah, I just had that discussion with my wife a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, uh, and I won't go into my story, but people have known it. I relapsed after fourteen years, mm. and I told, and my we just had this conversation, and I said it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me an opportunity to come back and do this program properly because like you and your early relationship my this marriage was about to fail right yeah. it was she, she was not going to put up with it any longer mm-hmm. and it's given both of us a total new you know life and she even sees that now right she's like yeah i get it It wasn't fun she doesn't love the fact that i'm out three nights a week or whatever it might be and meeting with sponsees yeah but it is a it is a wonderful program that cha- can change your life if you give it a chance that's really good to hear and what I'll say about what you just mentioned is that you have something that I don't have, and that is you have the experience of having slipped. Yeah. I haven't had that opportunity, but I've counted on people who have slipped multiple right. times, people I've sponsored, people I know, right. to bring back the word about what it was like. So what happened to you? How long were you out when you slipped? I didn't slip long. I did quickly. I was I was here for 14 years. I came in in 95, so I came in not too long after. But sure. I didn't stay. I didn't stay. And I always tell a story. I had two young children at home. Mm-hmm. I was underemployed or unemployed mm-hmm. for a big part of that time. Mm-hmm. And I truly thought, and I mean this honestly, in, heart, in my heart of hearts, I truly thought that once I got sober and I sort of got on my feet, that my job was to go home and raise my kids and be a husband. Mm-hmm. I truly thought that's what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I did. Yeah. And sure enough, like the old story, I got away from the program, and years went by. I lost that marriage, right? Mm. That was, this is a different marriage, mm-hmm. so I lost that marriage in what was sobriety at the time. And then I, you know, I just made I made a plan. I'm a, I was a salesperson. I was on the road, not a lot, but enough. And just decided one day, like, I think I could probably have a couple bears. And obviously, I couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, I always tell the story. I picked up in October of 2009, and I was a closet drinker. And by December of that year, I was drinking in my basement alone. Hmm. So it took me less than three months. So what? Was, so how long were you actually out there? From and I, then I was out, and I came back. So that was 2009. I drank about 10 months. About 10 uh, months. Nine, yeah, nine, 10 months. Okay, so you made it and back. That's the important thing. I did make it back. That's but the we were. Thing. Like I said, one of the things, even though my wife at the time wasn't aware, my wife came home that December and said that she had gone to see a divorce attorney, mm-hmm. right? I, I tell this all the time. My first response to her was, great, let's let's split it all up, <laughs> right? Let's split it all up. And this, I, I was drinking. She didn't know I was drinking at the time. I'm like, yeah, I can go out and keep drinking, right? That's what the disease did to me. But through the grace of God, my higher power, and then come back to this room and then really doing it the right way, I was able to find my way back. Which brings me to you. So you come in in 1988, yeah. and then it's what, easy right after that? Everything's no, you uh, roses? No, no. <laughs> I hope not. No, as a matter no, of fact, <laughs> my first year was miserable in AA yeah. because I came to AA. I thought AA was a self-help program. And so I came in, I read the steps on the wall. I objected to God in the program because being of a minority religion, People have always tried to shove their beliefs down my throat, you know, to win a toaster or to win, you know, uh, a place in heaven for themselves. But I always, always had a difficulty with that. And I came in, I saw the steps, I heard people sharing, I couldn't relate, I was focusing on all the differences. My MO during my first year was I would come late, I would leave early. And if anybody said anything I didn't like, I would just get up and leave. Mm -hmm. So I was leaving a lot of meetings. There was one club that I went to, though, all the time. And, you know, part of it was it gave me something to do on my lunch hour because I was in sales, too. And, you know, I had to be hiding from the boss because I wasn't making sales like I should because I was too stoned most of the day that I was supposed to be working as a responsible employee. So I'm sitting there in AA. 
I'm not reading the book. I'm not praying. Sponsorship, I just didn't get the concept. Nobody in the early meetings I was in said anything about what a sponsor was or what the role of a sponsor was. I thought, who is this sponsor person? Everybody talks about him as if they're this mythical being who just, you know, just came off of the mountain. And I never really got that. And so I really, but I didn't want anybody in the rooms to know that I wasn't, that there was anything wrong. So I lied about a lot of stuff. When people say, have you worked this this step? Yeah, I've worked that step. I hadn't. Have you read this? Yes, I hadn't. Have you prayed about it? No, I hadn't. But I told them that I did. And about nearly a year in, I didn't have a sponsor. I was feeling miserable. And I just thought, you know what? Even if I'm the first guy to prove it, my soulful belief is that AA does not work. And I will be the guy who proves it. And I was ready to just go. I was ready to leave. And I was going out to drink, and I said, okay, I'll find some other way to around this, this trouble in my life. And fortunately, you know how there are certain people in meetings who keep their eye on the guy who's having a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. who probably don't say anything more than a few words every now and then just to let them know that they're still concerned about him. There were a few people like that at the club that I was going to that when I was heading out the door, they kind of caught me, caught my shirt tails up and they pulled me back in and they said, what are you doing? I said, AA doesn't work. It may work for you. It may work for you. It doesn't work for me. Now get out of my way and let me go do what I need to do. And they said, well, have you tried, have you tried it our way? I said, you know, what's your way? I've been doing, this doesn't work. I read the steps. That doesn't do. Yeah, I've tried to pray. I read the first few pages of the book. That does, It doesn't work. He said, why don't you do what we ask you to do and then see how it works? And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go drink anyway, so why not give it a shot? And then a few days later, I, I didn't have a sponsor. I thought, I'm never going to be able to do this without a sponsor. I was seeing a therapist at the time who was in AA who suggested I pray about it of all things for a therapist to tell a patient. And so I did, and a few days later, that's when I met my sponsor. Because the first two guys I asked to be my sponsor said no. They turned me down. And after the first one, I thought it was a fluke, you know? Because you got to build up a lot of courage to walk up to another man. It's like asking someone to marry you. If they say yes, you're elated. If they say no, you're crushed. I think asking a sponsor is harder. (laughs) Yeah, asking a sponsor. Okay, so I thought, okay. And it took me another two weeks to finally build up the courage to ask the second guy, thinking no way in the world he's going to turn me down. He said no. And so I thought, well, I'm hopeless. I'm done for. What this means, that both declinations to sponsor me means, is that I'm not worthy of having a sponsor. Ergo, I'm not worthy to be sober. So why not just depart the scene? Fortunately, a couple days after I said that, meaningless prayer, a man sat down to me and next to me in that meeting who I'd never seen before. And to make a long story short, he became my sponsor. We had a little chit-chat, whatever else. But as we were walking out of the club together, he said, do you have a sponsor? And I lied to him. I said, yeah, yeah, I have a sponsor. You know, I, I talked to Bob over there. He must be my sponsor because he talked to me. So that, that okay. must be a sponsor. And it wasn't. It was, and he saw right through it. And he said, you don't have a sponsor, do you, Howard? I said, no. I didn't you know, I said, nobody wants to sponsor me. He says, well, I'll sponsor you. And I thought, wow, how do you like that? He said, for 30 days. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man. You know, I, I was crestfallen yeah. because now after what I've been through, he says yes, and then 30 days. And he told me something that I told the men that I sponsor. The thing about the, you know, the, the difficulty if you ask someone to be your sponsor, say they say no, or it doesn't work out with these expectations that it will, then you're crushed and you might go back out and drink. But he said, if we give this thing 30 days with the understanding that we're giving it 30 days and it doesn't work, we can part ways at 30 days, having given it no more than 30 days with the understanding that if it didn't work, that we would go our separate ways. And that that turned out to be brilliant. And Mike... S is, in fact, he was my, he was one of my, let me see, he was amongst my, he was in here somewhere, yeah, he was my 27th interview, sober a year longer than I, uh, he's still my sponsor to this day, so the 30 days came and went. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and this man's been my sponsor for the better part of 33 years. Well, it sounds like you've been on a series of 30-day contracts. 
over and over again, just renewed every month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what was interesting about it was he's moved a lot. He hasn't lived where I have daily access to him in like 27 years. He's moved all over the country. But the cool thing is he's in the kind of job where he's on the road all the uh, He has been on the road all the time. He's mostly retired now. But he would always be in a airport, a hotel room, a rental car, or waiting for a plane. So we'd always have a chance to talk. So I talk to my sponsor more than most men who have their sponsors in meetings with them every day talk with them. So it was very cool. It worked out well. So never let it be said that just because your t- sponsor leaves town, he can't continue to be your yeah. sponsor. Especially what we know about interaction because of Zoom, it still can work. I'm the district treasurer, and we have whole meetings now that are Zoom only, where there are people who got sober after the pandemic started, who have gotten sober completely on Zoom of never having the experience of in-person. And I think it's worth looking at that and saying, embrace the change there. The world has gotten a lot smaller. I'm shifting a little bit here because you said some things here that, again, I think reinforce the higher power. If you're listening and you're struggling with the gone concept, if you're struggling with a higher power, I have been having my struggles lately. And then I went to my Monday meeting and somebody said something about it. And I raised my hand and I said, damn it, you mentioned about taking your will back. I'm doing it in this situation. I talked to my therapist. My therapist is also a 12-step therapist. And as I'm getting out of my car, I get a text from a friend of mine saying, hey, can you come on my podcast tonight? I go, sure, when? He goes, now. And the topic is a higher power. Hmm. And I'm like... I feel like your podcast is all for me. And now we're talking again about this stuff because it feels like, Howard, you shouldn't have gotten sober. You should have gone out. But there were a whole bunch of things going on that a higher power is working through those people who pulled you by the shirt and pulled you in. That's not always the case with that newcomer who is not as invested. For me, what I believe is that, you know, God will work through the people in the program to reach other people in the program. But I don't think it's unusual for people to struggle spiritually with the program from time to time, depending on the situation that occurs. But yeah, I, I try and I try and in every interview I do, I try and get to what the person's spiritual condition is now and what it has been, what growth of a spiritual relationship looks like. I'm very much of the school that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And part of the human experience is the just not being able to be perfect part. So when it says in the fifth step, we strive for spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. The problem is that the human part of that, that, that human part of our spirit wants to be perfect anyway. So at the end of the day, if the best we can do is stay sober that day, it's a win. So if you can't if you can't quite get it today and you're too distracted by your lack of outwardly spirituality or outward spirituality then just you know stay sober till the end of the day go to bed and get up tomorrow and deal with it then cuz there's a good chance you're going to feel different about it with the number of meetings that you go to with the number of men that you sponsor you know I've got people who I've known for years who the the real key to their recovery and then the enrichment of their lives in AA has been sponsoring other men or getting involved in some service position just because you know what it does and prayer is the other good thing my belief about prayer is prayer is a great distraction from thinking about ourselves for a period of time that we're in you know when I'm on my knees in the morning saying my prayers there's a good chance I'm not thinking about myself during that period of time that I'm actually speaking the prayers and it's a re- you know, it's a break you know, yeah. from from ego for a few minutes. Yeah, I I always tell people I have no clue how prayer works. All I know is that I feel better when I do it. Um, and really, and that, and I mean that, like that is the truth. I have no idea who's listening, how how it's happening, but I just know that when I do it, and when I, especially when I feel somewhat uh, connection, I just I just feel better. My day goes better. Everything goes better. Yeah, so. and and I'm a believer too that. God doesn't need our prayers. We need our yeah, prayers. Yeah. You know, good, good God point. already knows us better than we know ourselves. You know, if if I'm willing to believe that God is present in his entirety 
every point in space at the same time. That's pretty big. But when I, my, my personal spiritual belief before I got to AA was, well, yeah, I, I believe that, but, you know, he can't possibly be working in me. Well, that's kind of a backhanded way of saying I'm more powerful than God. If I can keep God out of my life, what does that make me? That makes me a step above. Instead of just knowing that God's going to be in my life whether I like it or not. He's going to be in your life whether I like it or not. The other thing, too, is I always used to believe the good stuff that happened was God working in my life. The bad stuff that happened was something else. And what I've come to realize over the years is, no, the good stuff is God, the bad stuff is God, and everything else in between. Now, why he lets little cute children die, I don't know, and that's not for me to know. It's not for me to know. It may be something that I can, in the human realm, help with, you know, get involved with, but I don't know why that kind of stuff happens. I'm just willing to say, if God can can take you and me and Steve and Matt and everybody else and help us stay sober, there's a good chance that he can do a lot of other stuff too. Not only help us stay sober, but help us become useful useful members of, of the human race, really. I, and yeah, I say that people, people have asked me, you know, I'm, I'll be 64 years old this year. So I always say that my goal right now is to be useful and helpful. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. to as many people as possible. That's that's what that this program has given me. So anyway, you got your sponsor, and how long did it take you to go through the steps? I mean, did you jump right into he it? Had me, he, yeah, he had me work through them pretty okay. quick because I had attempted to do the steps before I got a sponsor, mm-hmm. and I even went to one of these fourth step workshops where they gave the the uh, the the guides the. the right. yeah. You guys know what yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. about, the workbooks. Yeah, the 40-page you know, the, the the book. Yeah, the 40-page yeah. book that asks you every single right. question yeah, yeah. in the world, and it's supposed to point you in the right direction. And I tried that, and the problem was at the end of I don't know how many hours on this weekend workshop, it was a weekend workshop where you pay money to, okay. to learn how to do a fourth step. I had like 17 pages of resentments just about my dad, <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. God, and seriously, yeah. I, I thought I'd opened Pandora's box, and I could not get, I, there's, I couldn't get the lid shut, and it scared the shit out of me, and I said, this is too big, this is too big, I'll leave this for another time, and I put it away. My sponsor sat down with me, he looked at the, what I had done previously, he threw that out, he said, I'm going to show you how we do the fourth step, the way it says in the right. book. And we went through it. And the cool thing about it that I learned from him is it's not enough to just read it to a guy. You've got to work a pen across the paper and show him how to do it with some concrete examples. They learn better that way. That's been my experience. I've done the same thing with guys I sponsor. I, I take out, I still have my fourth step around or one of them. And, uh, and I will. I, I'll sit down with them and show them how I, how I did it. Like, here's what I did. Yeah. Here's what it looks like for me. You'll find your way if you, if you do it that way, too. Yeah, how about you, uh, Matt? How did your fourth step look? I started with a downloadable Excel file. So I did it Uh the complex way. And after talking to my sponsor, I I moved back to, let me get a legal pad and just put a couple lines in there and I'm going to write it. It's funny because if you look at the big book, everything is there. You don't have to have a class. You don't have to have a workshop. You don't have to have a spreadsheet. It actually tells you exactly how to do it, but it seems so simple, it must be more complex. So I started in a complex way, and then I said, screw it. I'm going to do it and just put some lines here, and I'm going to write this stuff out. Well, my, my sponsor told me something I tell all the guys that I sponsor. Before you start writing, just close your eyes and just ask God to guide the point of that pencil or pen across the sheet of paper. And when you're done, you're done. And... And what that meant was I was done to the extent that I could access the things that I could access at that right. time. That's why I've done multiple fourth steps over the years, because as you get into recovery and as you start to heal, things will come up, which is why people do multiple fourth steps. I've lost more men over the years to, to the not doing of a fourth step than any other reason why they either slip or they want to find another sponsor. Because I'm real big on the, you can't move through the steps if you skip step four. 
sooner or later you're going to have to face the facts of your past and the resentments that you're still carrying around if you want to get well. But that, that is, it is a process. And, and when people say, I'm going to do it in my computer, <laughs> I say, there's just something that's really visceral about the experience of writing it out. There's just something about that, that there's a detachment from the feeling the minute you start putting it into a computerized format. That's just my experience. I'm big into OneNote. I use apps. I track things on the computer. I'm all about technology. On this one, right. the best technology is a pencil with an eraser on the end and a legal pad so that you can yeah. make corrections on the fly if you write something wrong and everything is together on that legal pad that you can just walk in with your sponsor and he can help you with where you're going. I looked forward to my fourth and fifth step. I didn't look at dread because I looked at it. It's a bonding experience. I wanted to be like the old timers that I looked up to and they had done this. And if I was going to be like them, I had to do this too. And I built a good relationship with my sponsors. So this was kind of a rehash of things we've talked about over time, just put in a summary of all the conversations we had had over a period of months. I mm -hmm. never had a problem. I never looked, I looked forward to this. I'm like, I'm really going to look forward to this day that we sit and we talk about this stuff. And it was mm. great. Cause I walked out with a bag of cookies that his wife made. And I think I, <laughs> I think I housed those down in the entire ride home. Right. Did you feel lighter and, yes. and, and the burdens had been lifted from your shoulders? Yeah, yeah and, I, and, it, and there was that rite of passage feeling that there was that burden lifted, but also I feel like I belong now. Now I yeah, feel you like can I've sit in a meeting and right. right. You can sit in a meeting and feel like I'm part of the right. group because that always seems to be the, the delineator for a lot of people is that fourth step and the fifth step. But then you've got the burden of the eighth and ninth step coming. They're coming. And the thing I always tell men from a practical standpoint about doing the fourth step, especially when it involves getting to the things they really need to get to, is to write the fourth step as if there is no fifth step. In other words, write it as if you were going to throw it out afterwards or nobody would ever see it. Because the idea looming in the back of my mind that I was going to have to tell somebody what I was writing down was inhibiting for me. And I was inhibited from writing things out that I thought I can't possibly tell. And I didn't use my sponsor to listen to my fifth step because I didn't know him long enough. I went to my therapist who had been sober and he spent like three hours listening to my two and a half hours listening to my fifth step. At the end of it, he said, you know, is that all? And he did a good, you know, the classic job of listening to a fifth step. And as I was getting ready to leave, I started to write out a check for like 225 <laughs> bucks or something like that. And he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I spent two and a half hours with you. Your rate is this. And so it comes out to 225. He says, put that away. I said, what are you talking about? He says, listening to another man's fifth step is how I stay sober. And that was a real important lesson for me to learn. But so then... By not burning, which a lot of people do, or shredding, which a lot of people do, their fourth step, I had what I needed to do the eighth and ninth steps. Once again, the sponsor became a pivotal, a pivotal part of that entire process. As I started writing down, what happened for me was I thought that anybody I'd ever come in contact with in my entire life had somehow been harmed by my presence. Just breathing air in the same space, they must have been harmed by me. So I had this enormous list of people who I owed amends to. My sponsor did for me with something else he taught me that I do for the guys I sponsor, and that is, he said, you're not going anywhere with this thing until we sit down and look at that list. And he sat down, he had a red pencil, and, he's, he's, and he kept asking me the same question over and over. What was the real, not imagined, what was the real harm that was done? And just thinking negative thoughts about somebody is not harming them unless those thoughts manifest in saying something or physically doing something. So he kept crossing out, crossing out, you know, and, and, and there, were, there were amends on there that were, had ulterior motives attached to him, like maybe I could see that woman again. You know, I, you know that, that kind of, he crossed all that off. And by the end of it all, I had a manageable list, but we weren't done. He said, now I want you to practice every single one of these. And we went through each one 
and role-played. And he said, the thing you have to do is you need to keep your expectations for forgiveness down and up. Slightly above the floor level, because there's a possibility that if you go in there expecting to be forgiven after doing an eighth, a ninth step amend, they might not forgive you, and you might go out and drink over that. So I went into these amends, knowing what I was going to say because I had practiced it with my sponsor, going in there with expectations that were pretty low. Although I think everybody just naturally thinks that if I'd make an amend to you, Steve, you're going to say, ah, oh, that's the right hour. Don't worry about it. It's water under the bridge or whatever else. But every now and then you'll run into somebody who goes in for an amend and that person tears them a new asshole, right? And when that happens, that person might go out and drink over that because it's a failed effort at something that's such a key part of the program. I don't consider that a failure. Because I've always looked at it of setting my expectations of you are not doing it to get forgiveness. You're doing it for you. You're doing it to do your part. If you get a pat on the back, then it's a bonus. That's wonderful. If you don't, it's irrelevant because you've done your part. You're you're right. I've always told my sponsors the same thing. Is you go in there, you don't worry about the outcome of the. You just go out and do it. And I, when I was doing my my ninth step, the tough ones especially, I I always touched base with my sponsor before I went and did it. Like I always mm-hmm. called my sponsor, told him, okay, next Thursday I can remember doing my ex wife. Next Thursday I'm going to meet with my ex wife. I I need to talk to you before I go there. Right. Just to get in the right frame of mind, we'll talk for ten minutes as I'm driving, probably, and then get there, and then I'm I'm set up and I I do the immense, uh, and that way I'm in a in a good frame of mind. Well, and for me, it it was getting the crystal clear understanding, and I didn't have it at first, but over the years it's crystallized for me, and that is that doing a ninth step amend is about admitting where I was wrong, and what I'm going to do different. The amend the amending process itself is about a changed behavior and or a changed frame of mind whatever that might be but going in to say i'm sorry i said i'm sorry so many times to people that it 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 started to mean absolutely nothing to them and expecting them to forgive me walking in expecting forgiveness is just laying a trap that could end up taking me out so i have to be real clear about that i always say an apology is part of an amends but it is not an amends is what I tell True. is what I tell my sponsors. Yeah, you have to apologize mm-hmm. if you harmed them, but it's not it's yeah. not the amends at all. I got very excited recently, paying off a collections debt. We were applying for a loan, and going through my report, I saw a medical bill that was pretty sizable that I hadn't thought about, and I got excited about it because I thought I can kill two birds at one stone here. This qualifies as an amend. I can get this done. And it's something off my plate. And I wrote that check with a big smile on my face. I'm like, damn, I should have done this earlier. This is great. This is clearing out my bank account. I'm going to be a little bit hurt, but this is a good thing. This is an amends that I can get done. And I did have the positive thing that I had to call somebody about it and said, you know, I've let this go too long. I want to make it square. I'm not sure what to do. And the one said, you're talking to the right person. I'm going to help you through this because you have that expectation there of I'm going to get yelled at the same way. And somebody bailed me out there saying, no, 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 I'm here to help you out because it was embarrassing. But I did. It helped me get over writing that check. I'm like, hot damn, I can make this Mm. recovery based paying off this debt. (laughs) It'll help me stay sober today. Howard, what got you into doing a podcast? Well, okay, so I've done two podcasts. I've done the Big Book Podcast, which is word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, done over about 90 episodes, with an introduction mostly of the second edition that focuses in on who the people actually were, a little bit of a historical perspective, and then I read that part of the Big Book. All right, so John is, um, John is going to freak out that he missed this. Because John, who is usually with us, is an AA history freak. So right. I've got to get this in front of him. That's fantastic. Right. Well, you know, basically, I, I just looked at sources that I had available. And over time, what happened was, at the, at the beginning, I would just say, 
I'm doing this, uh, you know, here's the story, whatever. This is in the public domain. There's no copyright, so I can do this. And But over time, what I realized was it was always, if I could find out a little bit more about who was the author of the story, to say something about that. But I, I don't make any comments uh, about the book itself, about the actual book itself. It's word for word, down to the punctuation. So I did that because... There are a lot of people who just don't read, and these are the days of people listening to things in their car and when they're walking their dog and everything else. So I thought that's a good time for people to listen to the big book. The other podcast I do, which I've done 69 episodes of now, and I I release one every week, is the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. And the reason I put that together was I've gone to so many speaker meetings over the years where... Somebody gets up in front, and you guys know if you've done any speaking, which I'm sure you both have, time goes by incredibly quickly while you're talking. It seems like it drags, but it's very, very quickly. But what ends up happening is there's such a focus on the what it was like part, because that's usually the most entertaining part of people's story. Oh, this is how bad I was, and you know all the crazy stuff I did. And then the what happened part, which can be equally as enthralling, right? You know, this is, I, I didn't get here right away, all this other stuff. Went on. And then the what it's been like since, you know. The problem is that people allocate time differently when they're speaking in front of a group because it's just natural to want to focus on the most interesting, entertaining part of your story. That then a lot of people, I noticed, were leaving five minutes at the end to say, and then I got sober 30 years ago, and I'm still sober today, the end. And thinking, wait a second, you know, you were, in, you were sober 30 more years than that last thing that you just got sober with. What's happened in that amount of time? So I figured the only way I was going to get that when I listened to people share their story was to interview them and get them to clarify certain things, not let them spend too much time on anything that's not really significant to take away time from a more important part of their story and just help them craft the story in a way that gives people the full picture. And the what it was like part is still the most entertaining. I'll admit that. Uh, The what happened part, again, very important. But I do tend to ask people the question, so what's happened in the last 30 years or the last 20 years or the last 10 years that have been milestones for you? Where were, where were your weak spots? What were the greatest gifts? A lot of these people I know personally. So, Ray, how did you deal with the cancer that, you, that I know that you had? Jim, I know that your wife passed away well into your sobriety. How did you deal with that? And then the flip side of that is, you know, Dow, you have an incredibly successful business out there. How did the AA help you in that way? And how is it, how has the success of your business actually affected your participation in AA? These are things I want to know. So I, I structure it. I structure the, it's just meant to be a conversation, kind of like what we're doing here right now. That was the original thought process when I started it is I wanted to take a speaker meeting and navigate it as opposed to somebody rambling on, let's have somebody there to guide the person through what they're saying in a more digestible form. form. Uh, I, right. I highly recommend it. If you're looking for another recovery podcast, this is the other thing is when I got sober back in 2014, there wasn't much out there. Uh, I found the recovered podcast and I couldn't find anything else. I was looking for like 10 recovery podcasts early on. And there wasn't there. There's a ton of them out there now going over a whole oh, yeah. bunch of stuff. Yeah. But Howard, yours I recommend because it sounds effortless, the things that you pull out of these people, like a conversation. And it can't possibly be totally effortless because I know on my end, it's not effortless. It's effortless to be a guest. I like being a guest places because I don't have to do anything. Uh, but it's effortless and you'll get a lot from it. And What I like about your podcast is you're clearly an old timer who has embraced changes. That's one of my big pet peeves in recovery is contempt prior to investigation. That's my favorite saying in AA, contempt prior to investigation. Keep your mind open. Bill would have done a podcast if he started today. He wrote a book because that was the cutting edge technology to get everything through. Yeah. Yeah. 
No doubt. So if you are looking for another podcast, you can go to AA Recovery Interviews on any podcast you got. It's, it's actually AA Recovery Interviews or recoveryinterviews.com. Both work. Originally, I was going to call it that, but then somewhere along the way in the beginning, as I started to do my research about how close could, how close could I align myself with AA and still respect the traditions and anonymity. And what I realized was, and going back on some of the history like you were talking about earlier, it AA was never meant to be a secret program. It was meant to be an anonymous program. And there was nothing in any of the early work that was done that precluded letting people know about AA. What we're not supposed to let people know is people we see in the meetings and blow their anonymity. Or in the case of talking in an AA meeting or whatever else in a way that blows somebody else's anonymity. I even go to the extent of cutting people's last names out when someone references, oh, my friend Bob Smith. Well, I'll cut the Smith out. And it's a little editing thing, but it keeps it, it holds to the general service office guidelines for online meetings and online efforts, so so to speak. Well, you do a great job, Howard. Thanks. Like I said, I, I listened to some of it getting ready for this podcast, and I know I'll be back, and just so you know, I put it, I sent it over to one of my sponsees today. He called me up, as he does every day, and I was sitting out my deck listening to your podcast, and I said, just finish a great podcast, Ray. Try this one, and I sent it over to him, so... Oh, he'll well, love I it. Appreciate, he'll love it. He, I appreciate it. I send him stuff too, and he, he eats this stuff up. He so he's, he's your target audience. Yeah. Well, and to me, finding people to interview has always been an interesting thing to do because most of the people I know personally, the biggest challenge really is getting women because there's so many more men in the program than there are women. But the women who I've been able to tell their stories have been have just been amazing, I think. And it's guys like you and I that I like to interview too. So just keep that under your hat for future reference. <laughs> uh, seriously. I, in fact, I, I joke with some guys I know in meetings. They say, how long are you going to do this? How many people are you going to interview? I said, well, how many people do I know? I said, sooner or later, everybody's story will probably get out there. Not everybody wants to do it though. And I understand mm-hmm. that. Some people, especially people with small children or who are really very, very protective What I tell people is that you're anonymous to the outside world, but you're not anonymous to somebody who hears your voice and says, hey, that's Matt. I know Matt J. or I know Steve C. I I know that voice and the things he's saying, I've heard him say. Well, the only way you're going to know that is if you know him. So you're not anonymous to people you already know. So it's kind of built in. But the thing I don't want to do is, especially since it's the World Wide Web we're talking about here, the the metasphere, the metaverse, or whatever they're calling it these days. These things are going to be out there for as long as I continue to pay the, the, the host to make them available. And there's no reason why they'll ever go away. But one of the things you notice where it says how many years they've been sober, somebody asked me early on, why don't you put the sobriety date there instead? That way, as people listen down the years, Christy, who's got three years, will have be Christy, who has five years when someone's listening to it. And I said, because their story is a snapshot of that day in their sobriety and what they were thinking and where their sobriety had led them to that point. That's why I use the number of years. Every now and then I'll run into somebody who between the time that I publish it and the time it's actually uh, up there, they actually turn another year older. So I try and be respectful of that as well. I like that thought of it's a snapshot. It's, It's a period piece in a sense. It's a snapshot of when they were sober at this time. Yeah, and there's some people who I've who've actually passed away. One of my best friends in sobriety passed away. He got COVID, and he died at 70, 71 years old. You know, he was like one of my best friends. We would go riding motorcycles together all the time, and we, we just had a lot of fun. Our wives knew each other very well. And we've, you know, they've been at all of our family things over the years. He died, and I kept thinking, I'll, I'll interview Jerry. I'll get to him. And in fact, I even told him, I said, I want to do an interview with you soon. And then he died. So yeah. I missed that. Hopefully these other people will stay alive for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Howard, this was an absolute pleasure. This was everything I hoped it could be. I am so glad that you could come on and tell your story and, 
and share your experience, strength, and hope with our audience. Well, thanks, Matt. I, I think the work that you and Steve are doing is very important as well. And I like the I like the fact that you call it sober friends, because that's what we really are when we're in AA together. We're sober friends. You know, we're people who can who can tell each other that they love each other and and really mean it. It's a really good thing that you guys are doing, and I, I enjoyed listening to the podcast. He's the host of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast and the Big Book Podcast. You can find Howard L. at recoveryinterviews.com, at aarecoveryinterviews.com, and at bigbookpodcast.com. Howard, thanks for being on the show. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. You made it this far into the podcast. That tells me you're a pretty big fan. If you like what we do and you find value in the podcast, consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash soberfriendspod. Your donation keeps us on the air to help out the new guy and helps us defray some of our costs. If you find value in our podcast, please consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash soberfriendspod.